If I wasn't fired up before, I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, God is good. All the time. And all the time, there you go. Yes. I'll pray real quick and we'll get started. Father, um, we have questions. And a lot of times um, we get up here and try to think that we have to provide all the answers. I'm going to present a really good question. I'm just going to lean to you to answer the question in people's lives because I can't. Uh, be with the, Have your spirit in here. Guide us in our discussions. We're going to throw some scripture up here. And I just ask that you let the scripture speak in people's hearts um, versus me. We love you and praise you in your son's name. Amen. Our dilemma and a possible choice, we're going to be out of Mark 10. Um, I kind of begin everything kind of with personal experience. I think, I think it's important that I say what I'm doing up here is personal to me. Uh, I think it has more of a connection when it does that way versus just standing up here and preaching at you. Because most of the time what I'm doing is I'm preaching at myself and that helps get the word out. So, so I grew up in a, in, a, in a really, in a very solid home. My parents were amazing in terms of their understanding of the gospel, in terms of their wanting and desire for me to understand the gospel. So um, you guys know this little thing I have in my head where I know all the movie quotes and I can, I, I, I say all these things and things just kind of fly out of my head all the time, right? About all that stuff. Okay. That's, <laughs> that's getting a lot. That started from the moment I could talk, okay? My dad grabbed a cassette recorder because my mom and dad would sing to me songs back in the, the 1977, Jesus Loves Me, Jesus Loves the Little Children of the World. My mom would put verses of Scripture to, to a song. So say, say, say. Uh, Isaiah 26, 3 and 4, I can do this in my head, right? Because, you know, thou will keep him in perfect peace. I mean, I just, that's what my mind does. And it did it from the time I was a year and a half. And my dad put a microphone up to me and recorded me when I was doing this as a kid. And I have had, had cassette tapes of me doing this. And the clarity in which I would sing was incredible. And that was just the way my mind worked, I guess, is the best way of putting it, right? And as I went forward, my parents took me to church, and I would go into Sunday schools, and I would get this. Who knows what this is? That's a flannel board, my friends. Woo! That's old school how you tell kids about the Bible stories, and you do it effectively so that it connects with them, not just in their hearing, but in their seeing and in their action, right? This was cool back then. This 1977, 78, 79. And it's still cool today, but we just can't do it today. It's still cool, right? But this is old flannel board, and I got all the flannel board stories. I got Moses and Father Abraham. It made sense. It made sense. Right? Okay. I, all, <laughs> we could all do it. Some of us could have just do this together, okay? Um, moving forward, my dad was always in Christian radio and or when he had his own radio station. It was a country station, but my dad made sure to put on Christian teaching on those radio stations as well. So I not only heard my dad on the radio growing up, I would hear John MacArthur, because my dad was one of the first radio stations to put John MacArthur on the radio, James Dobson, and Chuck Swindoll. 
Okay, you want to talk about three guys who taught. These are the voices I've heard between those four, my dad included, about the truth of God's word. I got into junior high and high school. My dad actually uh, owned a radio station, a small town in West Texas. Um, a small Baptist church in Esteline, Texas, asked him to be their pastor because they couldn't find anybody else and my dad would do it. So my dad went out there. So on Sundays, I'd either go to church or I would go work at the radio station as a board operator putting on John MacArthur, Chuck Swindoll, D. James Kennedy. How about through the Bible? J. Vernon McGee. Hey, friends. I mean, okay. When I, went to, when I went to church, there was a woman named Fran who took me, my brother, and the friends that we would bring, and she spent her time teaching us Bible school all the way through high school and spent the time in her spirit with us. I went to college, became part of organizations, Campus Crusade for Christ being the major one in eastern Michigan, um, in which I got teachings and learnings, Okay. All of that being said this, I'm going to ask a very interesting question now. Did any of that save me? Okay. It made me who I am. It helped me. It helped me come. It gave me some of the ability to get up here and do the things that I do in the way I do it. But absolutely none of that saved me. And I just say that and I want to make sure I get that through, particularly to youth, people coming up going, guys, I don't, as an elder of this church, I do not want people coming in here thinking that these kind of things save you. Coming to church does not save you. Growing up in these great teachers, you can hear all the great teaching you want, but that doesn't save me. Okay? I want to begin there because we're going to get into the scripture now because this is kind of where the disciples were. As Jesus was starting out, on his way to Jerusalem, a man came running up to him, knelt down and asked, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Is this a good question? The ultimate question, right? Great question. And was he sincere in the question? I think he was sincere in the question, right? This was not, a, this was not one of the Pharisees coming up to Jesus and trying to trick Jesus, correct? He came running up. He came running up. Hey, How do I get eternal life? He heard something about Jesus. Jesus was teaching something different. This is likely a very good Jewish boy who grew up. Now, how did a Jew inherit eternal life? What two things inherited a Jew to eternal life? The law and their keeping of the law. And what other one? They were born into it. They're Abraham's children. We got eternal life. Yet he's hearing something different, so different that he has to run up to Jesus and say, how do I get eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked. Here comes a rhetorical question. Jesus asked rhetorical questions. Only God is truly good, but to answer your question, you know the commandments. You must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely. You must not cheat anyone. Honor your father and mother. And this guy's reaction, and probably a lot of our reactions at times in our life was, I've obeyed all these commandments since I was young. Right? And he probably has in one form or another. As we have, as I did. Looking at the man, Jesus felt genuine love for him. 
there's still one thing you haven't done. Go, sell all your possessions, give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. And this man's face fell, and he went away, sad, for he had many possessions. So the dilemma of the rich man. And in some point, this story is in three of the Gospels, Mark, Matthew, and Luke. Um, what did the other, he is a rich man, but what does what some of the other ones say about him? It says rich, young man. He was a young man. Um, there are arguments that this actually was John Mark. John Mark being the one that wrote Mark. Okay? Not that that's, I can't verify that. I can't put that, but this is, that's kind of the, the saying of who this is. But he was at a dilemma. All his life he'd been taught one way to be able to have that he was going to have eternal life. And he comes excitedly before this teacher who's kind of teaching something new, something different. He asks him, how do I get eternal life? And Jesus basically says to him what? You don't. You can't. Good luck trying to do this on your own. That was the rich man's dilemma. But then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? This amazed them, and it should, and we'll talk about it in a second. But Jesus said again, dear children, it is very hard to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astonished because they understood what Jesus was saying. Who in the world can be saved then, they asked. And this is the dilemma of the disciples. Okay, great. Who can be saved? We're going to find out in a second. Peter's going to go, we gave up everything. What do you mean we can't be saved? What are you talking about? What are you talking about, Willis? <laughs> you know, in the vernacular of the 80s. <laughs> Woo, go 80s. Okay. They have a dilemma. They're at a crossroads here. Wait a minute. We get, we, we, what? It's impossible. Camel, eye, needle. What are you talking about? Jesus looked at them intently and said, humanly speaking, it is impossible. It's impossible. Can't do it. No good works. No good thing. No teaching that I learned. No thing that I did. Nothing. And this is our dilemma. We have entire denominations based upon what you do to get you into the kingdom of heaven. Okay? And it's easy to, as a Protestant church to bash the Catholic church, but the Catholic church, this is the way to heaven. This is what you do. This is who you say it to. This is how you go. And this is how you get into heaven. Okay? And that's a bash. But I'm now going to bash the Protestant church because the Catholic church at least tells you the rules. Right? Because you get into a Protestant church, the independent fundamental Bible believing Baptist church. Okay? We have rules nobody knows. You have to be here Sunday at 10, Sunday at 6, Wednesday at 6. And if you're not, we're going to look down on you. You better be wearing a suit, a dress. You better tithe properly, right? You better behave in a way in which we accept here at this place. 
Because if you don't, we're going to look on you in judgment and we're going to judge your salvation based upon that. Okay? That's our version of it. And this is the dilemma. We are in a dilemma. Our good works can't save us. And that's for every youth, for everybody who's over the age of 65, and for everybody in between, it can't happen. Jesus finished off, looked at them intently and said, humanly speaking, it's impossible, but with God, everything's possible. Then Peter understood the question, we've given up everything to follow you. What's their reaction? We've done it all. What are you talking about? Wait a minute, what do we do? My fishing stand, gone. You know, my, I had a wife, Peter had a wife. She's on the picture right now. He gave up everything. The disciples gave up their entire life to follow this man. And here's Jesus saying, can't be done. Good luck. Yes, Jesus replied. And I assure you that everyone who has given up house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or property for my sake and for the good news. Good news being what? What do we equate the good news to? Gospel. Two words that are synonymous. I think we've ruined the word gospel. I like saying good news more than gospel because we've ruined the word gospel. We've taken it and Americanized it and done, flipped it up, smacked it and beat it around. But it means the good news. We'll receive now in return 100 times as many houses, brothers, sisters, mother, children, and property along with persecution. And in the world to come, the person, that person will have eternal life. But many who are the greatest now will be the least important then, and those who seem least important now will be the greatest then. Okay. Disciples went after him trying to say, hey, there's a better way. Jesus found a better way because, you know, the Jews told him, you have to follow it and do it this way. But then they put roadblocks in the way for everybody else but the religious elite to actually get there. So Jesus came and broke those barriers down. And they said, great. Now we can come to God. But Jesus then put this in. You want to actually pursue God? Be the race to be the least. What? What do you mean race to be the least? What is what are all, of our, all of our efforts are always to get better, right? We're always looking to get better. And he's saying race to be the least. This is their reaction. They were now on the way to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them. The disciples were filled with awe and the people following behind were overwhelmed with fear. Fear. Jesus just broke down every assumption they had about how salvation was had. Taking the 12 disciples aside, Jesus once more began to describe everything that was about to happen to him. Here comes the... They were scared. Jesus just presented to him, everything you've known about religion is over. What do you do? And they understood the ramifications of what Jesus was saying. You can't do. Another aspect of this dilemma that I want to bring up is the opposite side of it, which is this. If you can't do anything to earn it, then why do you think you can do something to lose it? You can't earn it, but my gosh, do we sit here and go through 
every little aspect of our life and say we can lose it. And I asked it right here. What you're saying, you can't earn it and you can't lose what you never earned. It's time. Right? Because here's the deal. James says, right? James, if you break one aspect of the law, you've done what? Broke all of it. Go back to Jesus. One of his first major sermons, right, was the what? Sermon on the Mount. What did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount, basically? Five, three chapters in Matthew in which he's laying out the fact that it's not your outward sin that makes you a problem. It's your inward sin. It's your thought. Guys, if I can lose my salvation, I lost my salvation 15 minutes ago. The moment I had a bad attitude. The moment my wife irritated me. The moment a person in church irritated me. Right? All of those actions in technical situation would lose your salvation, much less going out, smoking weed, drinking, sleeping around on your wife, all of the big ones, right? We have, we have big ones and we have small ones. There's no such thing as a big or a small one. There's just sin. And sin is an act of the heart. And when was the last time I sinned? What day of the week? Well, it ended in Y. Okay? And if we really get technical, does anybody in this building want anybody to know what's going on in your head? We don't. And all of us at some level think we're the world's worst sinner. Okay? This is a common across the board reaction. So, great question. Here is our dilemma. You can't earn it. You can't lose it. What do we do in this dilemma? How do we react to it? Here's the thing. I had a great opening and I had a great question. I tried to answer it and I was terrible at it. Okay? I tried about three ways to Sunday to answer this question in my head, in my talk. I tried to do it this morning when I kind of practiced a little bit of this to get my timing down. Right? I struggled answering this for somebody. Because part of it is I think the answer is different in every one of us because we are all along this spectrum of spiritual pride to spiritual shame. We're somewhere in the middle. And each one of us have to figure that out with ourselves individually. But if I'm going to try to help you answer the question, I believe that God did bring to me a few sets of verses here that we can go through that may set our attitudes in our place to be able to answer that for ourselves. Okay? And I'm going to tell you, I'm going to do something. We're going to find out. I don't even know how I'm going to do it. But I'm going to do something a little uncomfortable at the end for me. Invitations have always been a problem for me at church. There are churches whose whole life, whole centered is centered around the 15-minute invitation at the end of the sermon. And the 25 people in there get the same invitation every week for 20 years. The, I, it's okay, except for the fact that you never get beyond that with people. And so here, we're not preaching to 
always say, here's the gospel. The gospel is a part of what we preach, but we are talking to you and ourselves. Me and Will, whoever's up here, we typically are speaking and teaching about how we live this life, not necessarily what has to be done for salvation every single time. But as an elder of this church, I also feel a responsibility that there is a time and a place to understand that I need to speak truth about who Jesus is and what our response to Jesus needs to be, whether that's uncomfortable or not, right? So I'm going to get uncomfortable at the end, but we'll, we'll get there. So let's go on a journey here of scripture just to kind of see where these answers to our dilemma may lie, okay? We're going to go to Hebrews. We're going to read six verses in Hebrews. And the first and the last are kind of my most important, but I think there's some stuff in the middle that might help you. Hebrews 11, 1 through 6. Faith shows the reality of what we hope for. What do we hope for? Salvation. What does salvation look for? What is the hope in the future? Eternal life with God, right? That there's something beyond this life that we're going to go experience something vastly greater than this forever. Our hope. It is the evidence of things we can't see. Through their faith, the people in the days of old earned a good reputation. Does that say they were saved? No. By faith, we understand that the entire universe was formed at God's command, that we now, what we now see did not come from anything that can be seen. Here's kind of an answer to the atheist. Ah! Okay. Well, here's how we understand how this was done. It was by faith that Abel brought a more acceptable offering to God than Cain did. Abel's offering gave evidence that it was a right, he was a righteous man. So his, and I want to say this here, his activities showed others who he was, right? So all these things in my life that I've gone through are evidences of something that happened in my life. But they're not proof. God showed his approval of his gifts. Although Abel is long dead, he still speaks to us by his example of faith. It was by faith that Enoch was taken up to heaven without dying. He disappeared because God took him. For before he was taken up, he was known as a person who pleased God. And here's what we want to pay attention to. And it is impossible to please God without faith. Anyone who wants to come to him, which is the question, how do I, how do I come to you, God? How do I become saved? How do I get eternal life? If you want to come to him, you must believe that God exists. That's important. <laughs> okay. But that he rewards those who sincerely seek him. Sincerely seeking him. He's a rewarder of sincerely seeking him. We have a start. We have a place. We have a jumping off point. God is. And our job is to seek him. And if we're seeking him, who typically are we not seeking at that point? Ourself. Okay? This is the opposite of pride. Pride is the seeking after my own pleasures. Seeking after God is seeking after his will. Jump off point, right? We're jumping off here. Okay. Next. How did God save us? What was the version of saving? Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, goes into this. Let me now remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news. Good news being gospel. I preached to you before 
You welcomed it then, and you still stand firm in it. It is the good news that saves you if you continue to believe the message I told you. Unless, of course, you believe something that was never true in the first place. Here is the good news. I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins. Just as he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said, and he was seen by Peter, then by the twelve, and after that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. Last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him. I being Paul. Thank you. Okay? Why are we, why do we know the story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection? The testimony of eyewitnesses. If I ask that question, a lot of people, a lot of people say, well, the Bible says so. Well, no. The Bible is a testimony of the witness of the 500 and the apostles and Paul, right? It's not the Bible that does it. In fact, there's no such thing technically as the Bible. There are the letters written by the New Testament writers. We have compiled them into this form of the Bible, and they have meaning and certainly uh, speak to us. But it's not the Bible that makes us believers. It is their witness to the event of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. That is how God reached down in a miracle and saved us. Because why? We couldn't save ourselves. Because why? No matter what I do, I'm going to break the law. And I'm going to do it until the day I die. There's only one moment in my life when I won't. And I'll be dead. And I'll be with Jesus at that point. Okay. For I am the least of all the apostles. This is Paul. I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle after the way I persecuted God's church. You think you did bad... Did you kill Christians because they were Christians? No. Okay. So Paul was bad. Okay. So here's Jesus. Died on a cross, raised from the dead. This is the payment. How do we receive it? Well, next verse. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. God saved you by his grace when you believed. What's grace? This is a hard question because we've, we've kind of screwed up the word grace too. An undeserved gift. There are people who will tell you, you have to earn God's grace. Do you know how silly that's, that statement is? How do you earn an unearnable gift? That, that, that means it's not grace. Guys, they're using the wrong word here. God saved you. So faith, knowing God exists, seeking after him earnestly. Jesus came to pay the penalty for our sins so that we can have this kind of faith. And God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. Because if we're measuring our good and our bad, and we do it all the time, we will always lose. So none of us can boast about it. 
All right, we get into kind of a picture here. Again, this picture is from Scripture. I'm trying. I don't have the answer to the question. I'm just going to present an offering of Scripture for the answer. Paul ended his with, but whatever I am now, whatever it is that God has done for me, it is all because God poured out his special favor on me. And not without results, for I have worked harder than any of the other apostles, yet it was not I, but God was working through me by his grace. Here's Paul. Paul's pretty cool. Did a lot. We listened and learned from Paul. We've been t- we're talking about a man t- from 2,000 years ago. So he had some impact in life. And he's saying, it was not I, but God working through me by his grace. If that's Paul, what are we? One of my favorite verses now in the Bible right here. This answers a lot of questions. Um, I never really... Going through the class that we went through, Dennis knows. Hi, Dennis. How are you? There you go. Hi, Sue. Back there. I got Dennis and Sue. They helped me discover this verse and and kind of the well-rounded meaning of this verse and the things that it can answer because it started because the question was from, from John 4, what was the living water? What was living water Jesus was talking about? And this verse kind of speaks to water and cleansing and things of that nature, but then there's so much more to it. But listen to the words from Titus. This is Paul writing to a man named Titus, and he says this as a part of it. He saved us. Who saved us? Jesus. Not because of the righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and a new life through the Holy Spirit. Is that time bound? No. Guys, if, he, if, it, if his death and resurrection happened before, it happened for all of our sins of all time. Not, be, not from the ones from right now because I said some magic prayer and took care of before, but everything that happened after is still up for grabs. That doesn't work for me. That doesn't work for anybody. Particularly when you age. Because you start bringing up the, some, this becomes a semantical problem for all of us. My dad lost his mind as he died. Okay? That was tough. Here's the man who invested in me, who throughout my life supported me. Um, nobody was my biggest fan than my dad. All the way around. Um, to retrieving footballs because he loved watching me kick. I was a kicker. And he would help me through high school, college, at every game, doing everything. But the most important thing my dad did for me was building me a real faith. He did not put a phony gospel in front of me. He did not present to me, go to church and everything will be okay. He presented to me, this is my life, these are my struggles, this is how God has handled it, and I'm just presenting that before you. But my dad lost his mind in the last six months of his life. The things that he said, the things that he did, did those things. If, if this was about everything that we do in the future, and God only takes care of the stuff in the past, where's my dad? Where's he at? Okay? 
And I think all of us are going to be presented with that in our life at some point if we age. We're not going to have complete control of our faculties at all times, right? That's just a fact of life. This is timeless. God paid for your sins once and for all. He generously poured out the Spirit upon us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Because of his grace, undeserved gift, he made us right in his sight and gave us confidence that we will inherit eternal life. Here is an area that's tough. Because like I said, we sit somewhere along the scale of spiritual pride and it's all about me and I'm good and I'm good enough. Or we sit somewhere in the spiritual shame. I'm never good enough. I can't do it. And some of us are Stuart Stuart Smalley from Saturday Night Live. I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. And gosh darn it, people like me. Okay. We're somewhere in the scale. But all of us, no matter where you're at, need to have this confidence. And we're going to talk about that at the end of what this confidence means for us. Because we're all across the board. I'm not going to assume that everybody in here actually understands what surrendering your life to Jesus means. And we're going, to, we're going to try to answer that. I don't know that everybody in here understands that it's not about the things that they've done or the things that they haven't done. Then I do know there are people in here that kind of, that we get this. We've gotten it for a long time, but, but life has beat down on us so much, particularly recently, that it just feels like, what am I doing? Where's this going? That is a reality that we live. And some of us at times know it more than others. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done. So none of us can boast about it. But here is the confidence Here is the glory because it does finish in 10. For we are God's masterpiece. What? We. We're God's masterpiece. When you know God, when you sincerely seek him, when you accept that he is by his grace and mercy, has paid the penalty. We're his masterpiece. He loves us. He wants us. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things that he planned for us long ago. There's our confidence. There's what we have. Worship team, come up for a second. Say for a second. Worship team, come up. What am I talking about? The uncomfortable part. There are three invitations I want to make in here. Okay? Three. Every invitation is different. I don't think, I'm not sitting here putting aside the context of there are true non-believers in the world. But if you're here in this church at some level, you have a knowledge, a thought, a process of who 
God is, and you have some kind of pursuit of him coming in here. So I'm not going to go from an invitation to say, if you're not completely outside of God, now you want to know him, obviously you can come to him. But I'm going to speak to you in one of three places. If you have been depending upon your spiritual pride your whole life, and it's subtle, guys, you look in your side, are you sincerely seeking him, and can you accept that you can't be good enough for him? That's an invitation. Come to know him, truly. Give up that aspect of your life. God will work for you. Not because of the righteous things that you have done, but because he loves you. And accepting that can change your life. It can, and basically what it does is it puts you inside the will of God and your spirit then begins to infect everybody else around you. Because if you're in spiritual pride, trust me, people know. Okay? If you believe that your life is worthless, that you can't possibly be saved, that God can't possibly love me because I've done X, Y, and Z. Well, you're not Paul. You didn't go out killing Christians and all throughout Jerusalem, did you? Okay, that's pretty bad. Just, just saying, you know, my problem with anger or lying or sexual temptation or whatnot, kind of in our realm of sin, pales in comparison to that. God wants you. He loves you. You are his masterpiece. He wants you to give that up for him because, again, you're stunted in your influence of other people because you feel God can't love you. This whole thing is put together for us to influence each other's lives. That's what we're here for. It's what church is. That's what life is. This is all about influencing other people, allowing God to, and if I get to where Paul, where did Paul say that? You see, for I have worked harder than anyway. It was not I, but God, and oh, that's not it. It's okay. My brain went, and then it left. It's okay. Finally, the invitation for us is love him. Seek him earnestly. Our lives can be messy. My life this last week was a wreck. Okay? And it's not anywhere near what some of the challenges some of you in here are facing, but for me, it was very challenging. It has to do with my job. You want to attack somebody, attack them in their job. You spend 60, 50 hours, 60 hours a week at a place, it does affect you guys. And it affected me this week in terms of even coming here and doing this. For many of us, that means you know you're saved. You have confidence in it. But you just, the worries and concerns and things of this life start to move those away. And God says, no, come, love me anyway. You guys brought me back today. As I came in here and just interacted and did my silly things that I did, everybody laughs at me. It's okay. Those things are impactful to me. 
and change my life because I see the goodness that God has. And I see what he has for my life. And regardless of what's going on, the reality of my situations, God has this. And I can have confidence in that. Let's pray. God, I ask that you just, all of us have a dilemma in our life that we have to deal with. And that dilemma sometimes has been handled pretty good, but there are times in which we lose it. The answers are all throughout Scripture. The lives of the apostles, the 500, Paul, and everybody since bear witness to it. They share it with us. This is why we're believers in the first place. Somebody shared with somebody, shared with somebody, shared with somebody who shared with us and shared with us the love and compassion and mercy and grace that you have on our life that changes this very thing that we are. I invite anybody who is struggling in their own pride, as uncomfortable as it is, sometimes an act that we do has an impact on our life, just come down, the front rows are actually open. Maybe kneel before God and say, I really do want to sacrifice and send my life to you. Earnestly seek you instead of my own will in my life. For those of you who struggle with shame, the struggle that God can't possibly love you, God invites you to come down and experience forgiveness, grace, and mercy between you and between him. And finally, those people that, yeah, you know what? I work somewhere between at times I feel shame and at times I feel pride, but you know, I've I've worked through my faith enough that, that I'm, that side's okay, but that the worries, concerns, pains and sufferings of this life choke that truth out. That's why we come together here. This showed me your grace and love today. I thank you and praise you for that because I needed it like nobody else. But coming down and seeking God even in that can be a place where you can be. They're going to play for two or three minutes. If no one comes down, it's okay. <laughs> That's why it's uncomfortable. I don't feel like you will. I don't want somebody to come. I don't have all the answers for you, but afterwards, if you want to talk, please talk to me and I can maybe point you in the direction of talking to somebody if you really need to have a bigger talk about your life than between you and God right here and now. But we love you, God. We thank you for your grace and mercy. Let us understand 
all of the things that impact us. Give us the confidence of your love. That's how we're going to get through. In your son's name.